Well, good morning, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. I, uh, I pray that your week has been productive in the Lord and peaceful because of the, the peace which can only come from the Lord, right? I pray that you've been anxious for nothing, and I pray that the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension has guarded your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus during this past week and even this morning as we get ready to hear your word or hear his word preached. Today we're going to continue to consider our first seven years as a church, looking back in hopes of charting our path forward to the next seven and beyond. And I'm excited to see all, the, all that Christ has in store for us as a church body in the coming years and decades, and I hope you as well are looking forward to those times as well. Keith and I, Keith and I were talking about our culture last week, uh, the culture of the United States around us, the culture of the Western culture, and he was uh, lamenting to me how everything has changed entirely during our lifetimes, that we, he and I, being a little bit older, were brought up in a completely different world. We see the changes, these changes in everything from sports to politics. We see them in relationships and technology. And today, technology has made our world even smaller than ever before, if you know that, right? I mean, we can get in a, on an airplane and be on the other side of the world in a few hours. We can talk to somebody on the phone, and we can see them on a video call. We, can, we have social media, yet our relationships if you haven't noticed, are strained like never before. We have never been actually further apart, even in the church. You see, I don't blame you young folks for thinking that old guys like Keith and I have lost touch with this world. I remember thinking the same thing when I heard older men and women speak back when I was younger. I remember thinking, they've lost it. They're out there. Yeah, I can only imagine what Miss Helene sees at, at her age, at 96, right? Is that right? 96, just turned 96. By the grace of God, absolutely. In my estimation, the world has changed more since 2020 than in my previous five decades. I mean, that's how quickly change is coming. You may accuse me of even having conspiracy theories, but I think this change is by design. I also believe that the coming decade will introduce even more significant changes in our way of life. I don't know what they're, they're going to be. You know, you, heard, you probably heard that the, for our former president, Donald Trump, won the Iowa caucus last week. That that's coming back around. Not only did he win, but he won in a landslide. So no matter what you believe about things like January 6th, whether you believe it was a legitimate coup attempt, by Trump and his supporters, or you believe it was set up by other forces as Christians, though, whatever you believe about those things, we must be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. You see, we are sheep among the wolves. I hope you see that. I hope you realize that. That we are sheep among the wolves, and the wolves are circling and according to our Lord, he sent the, the, the disciples out. He said, I send, send you as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. As such, we need to remember that government is not our hope. Joseph Biden is not our Lord. Donald J. Trump is not our Savior. Only Jesus Christ is our hope, our Lord, and our Savior. 
To many of you, the world may be seeming to be spinning out of control. Personally, I struggle to know what or even who to trust in this world. I, I don't know if that's the same for you, but I've, I've, at my age right now, where I'm at, as I look at this world, I struggle to know what or who I can trust in this world. Ultimately, though, I don't need to know who or what to trust because I know, I know the who. I only need to trust Jesus, right? The Lord Jesus. I need to trust that He's going to give hope to His people that He gives hope to His people. I need to trust that He will guide His people, and He is guiding His people, and I need to trust that He will ultimately save His people. You see, He gives me assurance of salvation, and He gives me assurance of a future that is absolutely secure in Him and cannot be taken away from us. Truly, as we consider how to press on toward our future at Grace Bible Church, I pray we can do so confidently assured that Christ will remain faithful to us. We need confidence and we need assurance that the Lord will build His church, and He has promised just that in Matthew 16, and that promise has not changed. I will build my church, and oh, by the way, the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So all the things that we worry about in this world, all the things that we see pressing in on us, we have the promise from our Lord's lips that the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That is the church. Two weeks ago, we began a mini-series in 2 Peter 1, 2-7. Now, as a church, we started, or we've looked to the Lord through the Apostle Peter to guide us into this next seven years and beyond. Today, we will conclude with a third and final installment of this series from 2 Peter. I pray that these sermons, I continue to pray that these sermons will give us the impetus to advance in great hope and in assurance toward the future, whether as individuals or as the church. With that, let me pray and we will read the passage. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would be with us, that this, these sermons, even today's sermon, would that there would be fruit into the future, that you would use them for our good and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Peter writes, starting in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, let me just start with verse 1. Simeon Peter, a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of God, of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, through the full knowledge of him who has called us, who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these... He has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the Lord by, or in the world, that is, by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. 
Now, as we approach 2024, and as we study this text, I want, to keep, I want you to keep, or continue keeping the following resolution in focus. In this world of confusion, we are resolved to have a faith that is true and growing. I pray that is your individual resolution, but I also pray that is, that is our resolution as the church body. So as we approach 2024 and beyond with all its possibilities, the Apostle Peter gives us three litmus tests for whether your faith is true and growing. We have seen, we, we're going to review briefly this morning, you must have a faith that advances in knowledge. Secondly, we're going to look at this morning a faith, you must have a faith that abounds in love. And thirdly, again, we're going to see this this morning, a faith that affirms God's grace. Now, three weeks ago, we began this series by studying the life of its author, of the author of 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter. We looked at his life following, following Christ while Christ was on earth. And we also looked at Peter's failures, including his greatest failure, denying Christ, denying Jesus his Lord during the trials of Christ, uh, right before he went to the cross. Now, the Apostle Peter, we have said, is the, is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, yet when, he came, when it came to time for him to stand firm, he vehemently denied his Lord. So he talked a good talk, but when the time came, when the time came to stand firm, then he failed. We see that in Luke 22, verses 61 and 62. He was completely devastated that when that time came, when the time came that he he promised that he would stand with the Lord, he failed miserably. Yet, our Lord was not done with Peter, not by a long shot. By his sovereign choice, Jesus restored Peter, and he used Peter just as he had promised. Jesus made him the church's central figure from the very beginning. And we see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, where Peter took his stand and he preached Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God in Jerusalem. Now he was also, I would call him, the bridge from a primarily Jewish church in Jerusalem to the Gentiles. We see that in Acts chapter 10, verse 25 to 28. Now let me be clear that the Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but that Peter was used as the bridge to the Gentiles. You see, the Lord used him, used Peter, that is, in mighty ways despite his many shortcomings and failures. Now that should, as you look at your own life, that should encourage your heart. You see, God's peop- God uses his people according to his will. And I, I, I actually love the truth. I, I apply this to my own heart. I love the truth that we are his workmanship, that, that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So when I look back at my life and I see so many failures and I see so many times that I did the wrong thing and I went, I zigged when I think I should have zagged, I can have, I can have great solace or take great solace in the fact that I am walking according to his will. Sometimes, sometimes I see the negative side of that when I disobey and he has to discipline me, right? But many times I see, oh, when I look back, I see how God has guided me through oh, so many things and I hope you can see the same thing in your own life. You see, God used Peter exactly how God pleased. 
And as we have seen, Peter then is the perfect person for us as a church to look to as we enter this next season of our church, the next seven years and beyond. He is a model for faithfulness even as we wrestle with our difficulties and with our failures as individuals and even as a church body. Peter wrote 2 Peter to believers who were chosen by God, who resided as exiles in strange lands. They had been scattered widely and were suffering fiery trials because of their faith. In his first letter, he wrote to help them understand that their suffering, their suffering was for God's, uh, for God's glory. And he wrote the second letter then because he knew or because they were in danger of being deceived by false teachers. You see, they were suffering for the Lord, and there were false teachers that were coming into them and taking advantage of them. These false teachers were parading around boasting of special knowledge. They were trying to draw away true believers by telling them that they needed this false knowledge to have a true and full relationship with Christ. In other words, they were missing something that they needed. And they may remind you of the present-day charismatics who say you need to be filled with the Spirit, that you don't have all of Him, that at salvation you're, you're just given a little bit, but you need more. It's the same kind of idea. They were missing something that they needed. At least that's what the false teachers were saying. And Peter wanted them to understand that Christ had given them everything they needed at salvation. And oh, by the, and oh, by the way, that is the common testimony of Scripture. They had everything they needed for salvation, and they had everything they needed for sanctification. Truly, they had everything they need, needed to be assured their faith was true and a growing faith in Christ. Now, as I said, at GBC, we need to be resolved to have a true and growing faith. And as such, I would argue that Peter has given us three litmus tests for whether our faith is true and growing. First, we saw that we, or you, all of us, need to have a faith that advances in knowledge. That's, that's starting in 2 Peter 1-2. Now, look down at that verse. Peter says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the full knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, as I said earlier, Peter was writing because there were false teachers in the church, and they were falsely teaching that the believers there needed more. They needed something more. They, they, they needed something that, that a, a transcendent knowledge that these false teachers could provide. So Peter wrote to give them an assurance of their faith. Give them the assurance of the faith. He wanted them, he wanted these believers to recognize God's grace and peace in their life. He wanted them to recognize God's uh, grace and peace, but he also wanted it to be multiplied in their lives. And he also wanted them to see that God's divine power had granted them everything pertaining to life and godliness. He wanted them to realize that God has called Christians by his own glory and excellence. So when God, God saves us, when God saves his people. He, Peter wanted them to know, and Paul says it in a different way, he wanted them to know that they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that they have been given more than they can imagine. They have abundantly more than they can imagine. Now, it probably doesn't feel, as Christians who walk in this fallen world, it probably doesn't feel to you like we're blessed in this grand fashion. Amazingly enough, when we are saved, God seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul tells us that in, in, 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit has been given to believers as a pledge of our incredible inheritance in Christ to His glory. 
It's easy for us to forget as we're walking around in the flesh, as we're walking around in this fallen world, it's easy for us to forget that God has given everything pertaining to life and godliness as we battle this world, as we battle the flesh. I love Paul's prayer. This is the Apostle Paul for the church at Ephesus. We saw this briefly this morning in our equipping class. Uh, Paul prays that, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give, to you, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the full knowledge of Him so that you, the eyes of your heart, having been enlightened, will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of the might of His strength, which He worked in Christ by raising Him from the dead and seating Him at His right hand in the heavenly places how amazing is that if you think about it i mean paul is stacking terms to get you to understand to get his get the, his listeners to understand how much we have in christ church according to peter and paul we have been given everything that we need more that, than we ever can imagine we've been granted full knowledge of him in his word We'll be given the Holy Spirit as the pledge of our incom incomprehensible inheritance in Him. And we've been given the Holy Spirit so that we can interpret and understand His Word, so that we can understand and have a full knowledge of Him, and so that we can grow even more in that in sanctification. So as we approach 2024 and beyond... I pray that the eyes of your heart will continue to be enlightened so that you will have true hope in Christ. You have been granted, you, your, your, this church body, each individual who knows the Lord has been granted everything you need pertaining to life and godliness. He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises and by then you become, may become partakers of the divine nature. And incredibly, I want you to know that there's a promise that you have escaped this, the corruption that is in the world by lust. And that is when God saved you, you escaped from the death grip the world had over you. What an amazing truth that that is. And all of this understanding will advance your faith to a point where you live triumphantly for Christ. You live triumphantly. Quite literally, you will come to know that nothing can separate you from uh, the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.28. Nothing. You will be able to live triumphantly with the full assurance of God's love for you. In the, apostles, in the Apostle John's word in 1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out all fear. Think about that. In terms of what God has accomplished on your behalf and who you are in Christ, you can have no fear. You can live life triumphantly knowing what Christ has done. Let's look at Peter's second litmus test. You must have a faith that abounds in love. Look down at your text in 2 Peter 1.5. This is new material. All that prior has been reviewed. Peter writes, now for this very reason, also applying all diligence, and we'll stop right there. So here's the thing. We have been given everything. So now, what, what more do we need to do? That's the question. We've been given everything, so what more do we need to do? In, in these previous verses, he tells us you have everything you need in Christ. Yet in this verse, he tells us that that is the very reason we need to work diligently. Now, 
<clears throat> if we think about it, this seems to be a paradox until you consider what he's actually saying. You might, you might actually envision this as a, as a banquet table that has been prepared for us with everything that we can imagine to drink or eat, right? So it's a banquet table with everything you can imagine. This banquet table is ready for us to partake. Yet, here's the truth. This table does us no good. It does us no good if we don't actually partake. This table, as beautiful as it might be, as filling as it might look like, if we don't actually partake, if we don't actually do something with it, then it, we, we would literally starve or die of thirst first. It does us no good if we don't recognize the goodness of what God has provided us. In 2 Peter 1.5, Peter begins to tell us that we can experience certainty in the Christian life. We have been given everything we need, yet we need to act upon this truth by doing everything in our strength to follow Him and experience His goodness. One commentator calls this a marvelous paradox. A marvelous paradox. You see, we have everything we need. Literally, the world is our banquet. We must act on it. That's the point. As a matter of fact, noticing, notice what Peter says in 2 Peter 1.5. Now for this very reason also. You see, what reason is he talking about? He's saying that you have become partakers of the divine nature. You have become partakers of the divine nature. You have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust because this is yours in Christ. Now do the following things. Because Jesus has given you everything, you must follow Him by giving everything to Him and to others. We have been given resources beyond our wildest imagination. We have been granted His very divine power. Therefore, He calls us to give our maximum effort, not holding anything back. Let's look at this from a different angle. The false teachers were trying to convince these believers of all that they did lack. They are making them doubt God's gracious provision. You see, they don't have everything they need, right? You need something more. You need, you need something more. Again, the charismatic movement today, you need something more. You, need, you didn't get all of the Spirit at salvation. You need more of the Spirit. They're making them struggle in misery because of their suffering. They're making them, or they're, they're, they're asking them or telling them, uh, they're making them withhold service, wondering what they will get in return. Have you ever seen people do that? You know, they're not, they're not going to give everything that they have because they want to make sure they get something in return. They're wondering why people aren't helping them, you know, right? They want to they make sure that they, it's, a, it's a tit for tat. Uh, the, these, the, these false teachers were also making them confused as to whether they understand and even know the truth. And, and ultimately, these false teachers were making them question whether they even knew God, right? Because they, they, didn't, they weren't getting everything they needed, right? I mean, even today, I don't mean to, I don't mean to keep picking on the charismatics, but, you know, the, the whole healing thing, right? right? When you, how, how horrible is it when they say, oh, we're going to heal somebody, and they don't do it because they can't. And then the, the person is left with, well, what is God, why, why is God not regarding me? 
See how dangerous that is? I mean, even at Bethel, they were, they were trying to raise a kid from the dead. I mean, it's just, it's just wrong. But Peter says, the way we unlock all that we've been given by our Lord is to apply all diligence. This idea of all diligence has the idea of earnestness or even zeal. I remember Christmas Day, Christmas morning, as a kid, you might say, I was earnest or zealous when I got up before dawn to open my presents. My parents thought I was. I was an eager beaver, at least on that day. I earnestly opened my gifts. The idea, this is the idea of that Greek word. It, it, it apply means to lavishly or generously do so. In other words, we don't hold anything back. Therefore, there's a sense of, of lavishness here. Now notice the word supply back in 2 Peter 1.5. We're moving a little bit forward. If you notice that in the next phrase, supply, this word gives the idea or the sense of providing generously at one's own expense. It conjures up the idea of, of public service without uh, compensation or remuneration. It's a, it is a lavish way of telling these Christians, Peter's telling these Christians to give lavishly and generously of their time, resources, and energy. In, in Peter's day, the, the leader of the chorus, they had big choruses, the, the choir masters would actually supply everything needed by the choir. Many times they did this at their own expense. In the words of the commentator, William Barclay, who we're going to hear from quite a bit this morning, William Barclay says this, that perhaps the greatest gift that Greece, or especially Athens, gave to the world was the plays and dramatic works of men, uh, that, that which are still among uh, the mo its most cherished uh, possessions. All these, these plays needed large choruses and were therefore very expensive to produce. In the great days of Athens, they, there were sp public-spirited citizens who voluntarily took on the duty at their own expense of collecting, maintaining, training, and equipping such choruses. It was at these major festivals that, that these plays were produced. And for instance, at the city of Dionysia, three tragedies, five comedies, and five wild, riotous choruses were produced. Men had to be find, found to provide the choruses for them all, a, a duty that would cost them as much as 3,000 drachma. Uh, the men who undertook these duties out of their own pocket and out of the love, out of love for their city, were called koragori. Koragoi, and koragain was the verb used for un undertaking such a duty. That's the verb that Peter uses here when he says to supply is the idea of supplying. But it's a, this extravagant giving of everything that we have in Christ. Now, by the way. If everything we have in Christ is inexhaustible, how much giving is, is our giving? Can, how much can our giving be in this way? Right? It's inexhaustible. Literally inexhaustible. Church, I, I know that many of us can struggle with what God is doing in, in our own lives, in our personal lives, and even in our church. The answer to these questions lies in this passage. You see, we have been given everything that we need, and we have been given even much, much more beyond our comprehension. We have been given never-ending and inexhaustible blessings. Now our Lord wants us to act on it. He wants us to act on it. He wants us to be extravagant in supplying our efforts to this amazing promise. 
Put simply, giving yourself in this way will actually give you full assurance of faith. Because you're going to see, as you act on His behalf, as you take on these big, uh, extravagant uh, giving, uh, as you do this in service to Him, you're going to see Him work through you, and you're going to see amazing things happen. You're going to see full assurance of what God has given you in Christ. Here's the key. We need to recognize that our faith will abound in love for God, for the saints, and for the lost when we recognize that the foundation is our faith in Christ. As we start studying these verses, we need to recognize that there are seven virtues here. And each one of those virtues builds upon the previous one. Again, William Barclay, the commentator, says it calls it the ladder of virtues. Your faith in Christ and His provision is the foundation of all of them. It's the, it's the well that, that, you're, that you're drawing from, if you will. From there, <clears throat> mixing all these metaphors, right? From there, each one forms a rung on a ladder. So you have the foundation... Each one forms a a rung on a ladder, or you can envision them as stair steps. But they're interlocking, and they work together as you move forward. So Peter says, Peter says, Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, so that's the foundation, in your faith, supply moral excellence. Now, Now, you need to recognize that our faith will abound in love when we supply moral excellence. The ESV translates this word as virtue. As virtue. So much supplement your faith with virtue. This term is very rare in Scripture, but it is the main Greek word used for virtue in every sense. It could be translated excellence, but the Legacy Standard Bible and the New American Standard Bible take it one step further by translating it as moral excellence. There are two ways this term could be understood. First, it could describe excellence in a person or thing. It could be used as some, of something such as a fertile land or a product that has been manufactured with extremely good functional quality, such as a knife that is sharp and holds its edge, or a long-lasting, high-quality automobile. I don't know if, if Omar's listening this morning, but he would say Toyota, right? Everybody sees Toyota as being the highest quality. It could also be used to describe the virtue that makes someone a good citizen or a friend. It can be described, uh, it could describe someone who is skilled at living. Uh, that's the first way. The second way is often used is of courage, It can be used as someone who has the courage to fight and die for what is right and good. Again, William Barclay points out that Plutarch uses this word when he says, God is a hope of courage, that's the same word, not an excuse for cowardice. That's what Plutarch said about it. I agree with with Barclay when he says this, faith must lead not to the retreat and seclusion of the cloister or the hermit's cell, but to a life effective in the service of God and other people, and it must produce the courage always to show whose life it is and whom it serves. So it needs to, have, it needs to produce the courage that shows that we serve God and that we're living our life for God, ultimately. See, that's the point. You may recall 
the first sermon, in the first sermon of this series, I called your attention to Philippians 3.14. You remember that one? Paul says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul's goal was to pursue excellence found only in Christ. He wanted to be like Christ. And so, when we pursue Christ, when you and I pursue Christ, we're pursuing the utmost of courage and excellence. So are we not? Because he is the personification of courage and excellence. You may recall Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. You see, he, Paul wanted to be he wanted to excel, and therefore he was imitate, an imitator of Christ. And he was calling them to be imitators of him, just as he is of Christ. He told the Thessalonians to excel still more in their walk with Christ. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. Excel still more. Secondly, secondly now, our faith will abound in love. Not only we supply moral excellence, but when we supply knowledge. Knowledge. Look back at your text in 2 Peter 1.5. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. In the Greek language, there are two different words that can be translated knowledge. The first word, sophia, is, has the idea of wisdom. Wisdom can be defined as the knowledge of things both human and divine and of their causes. You can understand it as the knowledge of what causes what. A wise person doesn't just look at the obvious that he can see. A wise person can track back to underlying and deep and ultimate causes. The second word, gnosis, which is used here, has more the idea of practical knowledge. You could say that it has the ability to look at a particular situation and apply the ultimate knowledge to it, Sophia. In the words of, again, William Barclay, he, he was very helpful in this, in this section, this knowledge, gnosis, which enables people to decide to take the right course and to act honorably and efficiently in the day-to-day -day circumstances of life. So to faith must be added courage and effectiveness. To courage and effectiveness must be added practical wisdom to deal with life. That's the, that's the point that Peter is trying to make to us. So not only those two things, but our faith should abound, our, our, our faith will abound in love when we supply self-control. Look down at your text in 2 Peter 1.6. Peter says, in your knowledge, in your knowledge, self-control. In your knowledge, self-control. This Greek word for self-control literally means to take a grip of oneself. In our common language, you might say, get a grip, right? We, we say, you heard, you've heard people say that. Maybe you've used that phrase. You might use this word to tell a child throwing a temper tantrum to get a, to get a grip, right? You need to gain some self-control, right? You need, to, you need to stop with the temper tantrum. And William Barclay's description of Aristotle is very helpful. Aristotle distinguished four states of life. He says there is a state in which passion has been put entirely under, under control of reason. We might call that perfect self-discipline. There is a, another state which is the precise opposite. It is the state in which reason is entirely suppressed by passion. So the first one is that 
we have the control of reason over our passion. There's a, it's completely controlled, right? The second one, passion completely controls reason, and we might call that unrestrained lust. In between this, these two states, there is another state in which reason fights, but passion prevails. The, you, so, so there's reason, but the passion ultimately prevails over the reason. Okay? We might call that a lack of self-restraint. And there is another state, this particular state, in which reason fights against passion and prevails. Okay? So, so ultimately, I, I, I have this tendency toward a lack of self-control. We all tend to have a, that tendency. And, and that we have reason, and reason ultimately prevails over, over our, our passions. That's called self-control. Having self-control is over one's passion is a great Christian virtue. And sadly, as you, as you survey the world, this virtue is lacking in, in the age of social media and even among Christians. You see, the world today knows very little restraint, right? As Christians, we're quick to passionately state our position and passionately state our thoughts while letting our passions ultimately win the day, right? We let the passions override our reason. And some people, some people, it completely suppresses that reason, reason, that reason and, and they're acting completely according to their passions. Sadly, when we do this, there is very little difference between our behavior and a child throwing a restrained temper tantrum. Let that hang over you for a second. When you act out of passion, when you don't let reason restrain the passion, you act like a child that's throwing a temper tantrum. Again, I can't say it better than William Barclay. Self-control does not contemplate a situation in which a person is stripped of all passion. It envisages, it envisages a situation in which passions remain, but are under perfect control, so become Servants, not tyrants. So we become servants, not tyrants. So you can be passionate. You can be passionate about the truth. But you let your reason, your reason uh, over, overrules how you act about that. Well, my favorite place is McDonald's. And so when I get bad service at McDonald's, instead of acting passionately about it, I let my reason overrule that and I quit going to McDonald's. I'm just kidding. Unfortunately, McDonald's is part of our lives, but you get that. You get the point. This word is also used in athletics. Strong and accomplished athletes are self-controlled, self-restrained, and self-disciplined. You see, athletes have to eat healthy food, and they have to drink healthy drink. Uh, they exercise diligently. They abstain from anything that would hurt their physical performance. As Christians... Faith is the foundation of our, of our courage and excellence, and our courage and excellence can't be maintained without a practical understanding of how to live, and we can't live wisely without exhibiting the proper restraint in our lives. And when we lavishly supply these things, when we lavishly give these things, we're on the right path, which leads to the next virtue. Our faith will abound in love when we supply perseverance. Look again at your text where Peter says, in your self-control, perseverance. Uh, the, uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, you says, in your self-control with endurance. Self-control with endurance. The ESV says self-control with steadfastness. 
This word, this Greek word has the idea of doing what is right and never giving up. Let me say that again. Doing what is right and never giving up. No trial, no temptation, no difficulty is ultimately too great. This word is used in Scripture for toil, for any trouble or difficulty that comes against us or against our will. Uh, these things that come against us make our lives extremely difficult and even, and even painful. And even, even to the point of death. We may respond initially to these kind of things with grief and shock. It could, this could be brought on by the, the death of a loved one or a great financial loss or the loss of our health or the health of a loved one uh, or even the loss of our freedom, uh, being thrown in jail for, for wrongdoing that we didn't do. Uh, it, could be, it could be in response to heinous wrongdoing against us or against others. Uh, uh, Didymus of, uh, of Alexandria writing in the third century on the attitude of Job, says, It is not the righteous man that the righteous man must be without feeling, although he must patiently bear the things that which afflict him, but it is a true virtue when it is true virtue when man when a man deeply feels the things he toils against, but nevertheless despises the sorrow for the sorrows for the sake of God. Michael Green has said the Christianity of such a man is like the steady burning of a star rather than an ephemeral brilliance and speedy eclipse of a meteor. I love the, the picture of an ultra-marathon runner. You know, used to, when I grew up, it was just marathons, right? Well, now there's ultra-marathons, and, and as far as, as what I can tell, there's even ultra-ultra-marathons. They, they went from 26 miles to 100 miles, and now they're like 240 or t- miles, and they just do it in, in incredible... Uh, times these men run these great dis- distances and many times they keep running when everything's against them uh, they may have great pain in their body they may encounter intense heat or even bone chilling cold they they get lost on the trail yet they soldier on toward the finish with this one greek word peter wants us to recognize the importance of soldiering on when life hits us in the mouth and we're not very good at it sometimes, are we? In the, wor- in the words of Mike Tyson, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the face. I like that. I like that. As Christians, we need to continue our plan to follow Christ even when we get punched in the face. Chrysostom calls per- perseverance the the queen of virtues, the foundation of right actions, peace and war, calm in the tempest, security and plots, and neither the violence of man nor the powers of, of, evil can, of the evil one can injure it. It is the quality which keeps a man on his feet with his face to the wind. It is the virtue which can transmute the hardest trial into glory because beyond pain it sees the goal. So not only will our faith abound in love when we supply godliness, but what about perseverance? Yes. Or what, perseverance, but what about godliness? Look at your text, 2 Peter 1.6. And in your perseverance, godliness. And, and these go together so beautifully. Because I, can be perse- perse- I can persevere, but I can be hard to live with persevering. But he's saying, not only in your perseverance, and in your perseverance, you need to be godly. The Greek word translated godliness could be rendered reverence or piety. 
It has the idea of having an awareness of God and His presence in every area of life, every activity of life. You could say it's true worship that encompasses our entire lives. You see, worship isn't just coming to church on a Sunday. It's everything that you do. This word has the idea of someone who adores God with their entire being. This word is exact, the exact opposite of an idolatry. Idolatry is the worshiping of things other than God. It's the, it's the worshiping of, of our stuff. It's the worshiping of, of others uh, other than God. This, this word describes giving God His rightful place of worship. You see, those who pursue godliness give God His due worship. But flowing out of this worship, flowing out of this worship, the godly ones, they serve others from a deep well of blessings that come only from God. And so they worship God for the blessings, but they're willing to be a conduit for the blessings as well. You could say that, you could say that truly godly people are in a right relationship with God and with others, as far as they can do it. You could say it is piety worked out practically. You could say it is a lifestyle of worship. King David in Psalm 16:8 says, he proclaims, I have set Yahweh continually before me because He is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.8 that godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and for the life to come. John MacArthur says that true Christians pursue practical awareness of God in every detail of their life. They are characterized by deep reverence for God, which leads to courageous, steadfast, joyful self-control under temptation, built on spiritual discernment in the pursuit of moral excellence. It is a marvelous fabric woven here in, or in 2 Peter chapter 1. Again, our friend William Barclay states, Godliness is the nearest Greek word for religion. And when we begin to define it, we see the intensely practical character of Christian religion. When people become Christians, they acknowledge a double duty to God and to their neighbors. To God and to their neighbors. Look back at your text then in 2 Peter 1.7. Our faith will abound in love when we supply not only godliness, but brotherly kindness. Brotherly kindness. This is the Greek word Philadelphia. You probably heard that word, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It literally means the love of the brethren. As true Christians, we must not let our religion separate us from others. Now, there are going to be a time when doctrinally we have to separate, but we're talking about now uh, devoting yourself to a supposed godliness where you block others out. People, people become, you might say it this way, people become intrusive in their supposed piety. They want to de devote themselves to their religion. They want to devote themselves to reading and studying and Scripture and to praying and to meditation. All of those things are good, and you should all be devoted to those things. But we need to, we need to devote ourselves also to the brethren so we can't be in a place where those things become or outweigh our devotion to the brethren. And sadly, many don't care even to devote themselves to a spouse and children, right? 
They're willing to uh, even, even forgo their spouse and children. And that doesn't mean some of you may be gifted in singleness. I don't know. But ultimately, my point is, is that if you have those responsibilities, you can't let your supposed religion outweigh those things. The Stoics teach that men should remain aloof and unattached. Epictetus never married. He said that he was doing far more for the world by being a philosopher without ties than producing two or three dirty-nosed children. We might say snotty-nosed children. He went on to say, how, how can he who has to teach mankind run to get something in which to heat the water to give his baby a bath? Church, our piety and reverence for God, our godliness has to be balanced with our love for others. We can never come to a point where we see personal relationships with the brethren and with our family as getting in the way of our worship. Sadly, many men in the past, many men that we would love have done that. Sadly. The Apostle John states, if someone says, I love God and hate his... If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar... For one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That is straight from the Apostle John. And let me give you one greater. Jesus himself said that the two greatest commandments are, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. Now, let's look at the next one. Our faith will abound in love when we supply sacrificial love. Look back at your text. In your brotherly kindness, love. See, Peter is ending his string of virtues with the grandest of all. We are to supply, lavishly supply, love. And this, this word is the, it's the greatest love that can be shown. In the words of John MacArthur, he says, this is the highest and purest and noblest love, which will then be reflected in kindness to Christian, other Christians, rising out of a deep reverence for our beloved God, leading to a courageous, steadfast, joyful self-control under temptation, built on, a spiritual, built on spiritual discernment and the consuming, compelling pursuit to be like Christ. It is just one big circle. And oh, by the way, and faith is the foundation for this whole thing. And love, and love is its culmination. End quote. Let me end this sermon and this series with our last major point. This is how Peter, and it goes fast. This is how Peter ends his letter. You must have a faith that affirms God's grace. You must have a faith that affirms God's grace. God's grace. Turn to 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your steadfastness. So he tells them in 17 that you are to be on guard and, and you need to be aware of these unprincipled men who have been propagating error, and you need to do this so that you won't fall from your steadfastness, perseverance. Then he says this, but grow in the grace 
and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, I could stop right there. As a church, this is the point. This is, the, this is it. This is the whole enchilada. That we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But you know I'm not going to stop there. It's 12.02. i got a few more minutes. Beloved, you and I, this church, we need to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we need to acknowledge and we need to affirm His grace. All that He has done, all that He has accomplished in our lives and in this world. And if you are in Him, you can be assured Philippians 1.6, Paul writes, For I am confident, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have given, given Him your life, He will see you through until the end. You can trust Him with your eternal life, but you can trust Him with oh so much more. You can trust Him with everything. Everything. As we approach 2024 and all that it's going to bring, as we approach the years after whatever that is, we have no clue what's going to hit us in the face. We have no clue. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Life literally could change drastically. I mean, we, don't, we just don't know. But we know this above all things. I know this above all things. You and I can trust our Lord. We can live sacrificially, just like Peter describes, because we serve a God with unimaginable power and unimaginable goodness. He will care for you. And He will never disappoint. Never disappoint. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this passage of Scripture. We thank You for the life of Peter, the Apostle Peter, who so perfect, You fashioned him in such a way Every event in his life, even the ones that we don't know about, every event put him in this position at the end of his life to write this very letter that we in 2024 are able to look at and study and understand and guides us into the future as we hope and trust in you and you alone. In Christ's name, amen.